the coach who said, well, you're never going to test positive, therefore it's okay. So what are we doing around the the way that we are essentially creating those climates and systems where that isn't even a conversation to be had? Hello there and welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast with me, Stevingham. Now, this podcast is all about exploring the experiences, concepts and insights from the world of high performance. And in each episode, I'm aiming to do is speak to people who have been there and done it, researched aspects of performance in real depth or have supported others to aspire. And it's my hope that you'll find something interesting, some ideas here to develop your philosophies, your work and maybe how you live your life. So first of all, I want to say thank you to those of you who've been in touch, suggesting ideas, content or your insights into performance for this idea that we're hatching of putting together a series of special podcast episodes, possibly daily during the Olympic Games. Here's what we're thinking. Some sort of reflection and anticipation on the big events and the interesting events, some content around what are the ingredients for a winning performance, whether that be brain, brawn or the battle plans and some more insider interviews. So if you're an athlete, coach, performer or support practitioner from any of the Olympic and Paralympic sports, especially those exciting new ones on the roster, with some insights that you're keen to share, then please do get in touch at inquiries at supportingchampions.co.uk. So this week's guest is Sue Backhouse, Professor of Psychology and Nutrition at Leeds Beckett University. Sue is an expert in two areas that are drenched in complexity eating and cheating. See, everyone's a nutritionist these days and everyone's a psychologist and nearly everyone has an opinion on the issue of doping. So they are three emotive, quite convoluted and noisy areas for Sue to tackle. What Sue's research does is something quite unique, particularly so compared with a lot of reductionist studies that pair back all of the confounding variables to a level of control, almost to a sterile level. Of course, you need those level of meticulous control for some research, but often important areas get neglected by researchers because they're too messy. But Sue tackles these topics head on, but she's also able to see through the clatter, the jumble, and offer some illuminating yet grounded findings and advice. In the conversation, we explore the hows and whys of influencing athletes to adopt certain dietary practices and why that's really tricky and how underpinning motivation and behaviour are essential for change. Then we get into a rich discussion about why people dope, the context, the knowledge they have, the social norms and the groupthink that can all be big factors in why people do take or don't take that step in violating the rules, and how people can actually reconcile their minds that perhaps doping is okay. Uh, This was a fascinating conversation about a fascinating area, and one that I have spent my life staunchly and adamantly working against doping and trying to work to support athletes in an ethical and a legal way. At the end of the conversation, though, I felt more aware. I I had an increased understanding and perhaps I felt slightly more empathic towards a doper. Not that I've lowered my stance, 
but by better understanding why people cheat, I feel I might be able to help someone choose not to. Fantastic. Well, a very warm welcome to the podcast, Professor Sue Backhouse. Welcome, Sue. Thank you very much, Steve. Thank you for inviting me and for sharing your platform. Oh, my pleasure. Now, I'm really conscious that with your expertise in two gargantuanly interesting areas of psychology of nutrition and doping, I'm conscious if we, we might need two podcasts here. We might not be able to do them fully justice. Well, we can certainly have a go today, can't we, and, and see see where we get to. Um, they're both areas that I am really passionate about and interested in. And, and I think probably my background provides some understanding as to why they are the areas of interest that have, have, have stood the test of time in terms of my focus and, and energy. Yeah. And I suppose there's a there's a clear overlap there that, that the why the psychology of nutrition is interesting. It's also going to be hugely relevant to the psychology of of doping. So we'll get we'll get into that. Yeah. Let's see if we need to either go again or um or whether we need to split this or whether it's just a big big old episode. <laughs> <laughs> a good old conversation that meanders between those two areas because they are very much as you say interconnected as 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 most things when it involves human beings are. Fantastic. So before we get into those topics as such, would you be kind enough to give us a bit of an overview of your background? It was just my polite way of saying, wait, tell us about yourself. Tell us about yourself. So I guess it's always interesting where people start. My identity, I think, is probably really grounded in being born and bred in Yorkshire. Uh, there's a huge amount of of pride in Yorkshire at the moment as a county and whether that's from our sporting events that we're hosting to just the the way that we interact and engage with each other. Um, I was born in in a place called Aquith in, in Pontefract and, and actually grew up in a pub. So I wonder whether that says something about my sense of community and, and engagement with people because I interacted with so many people in that early stage of my life from Dot and Flo, the cleaners who helped me learn to roller skate, you know, through to Tommy Turton, who I used to do handstands and cartwheels in the cricket field. So born and bred there in a very strong family unit, mum and dad, very significant in terms of my early life and currently still very significant now as I juggle being an academic, a practitioner, a mum, a wife, etc. You know, they are very much on hand and close by. From a very early age, and I think my interest in sport was was really ignited. And I think like many people who have, have come into sport, really significantly influenced by teachers in the early stages. Primary school, whether that was Mrs. Stevenson, who put on extra netball sessions after school, you know, because she wanted to, or whether then at high school, it was those teachers, you know, Mrs. Short, Miss Evans, who saw something in me from a netball, a, a hockey perspective, but then... I focused in on athletics and I actually trained at Carnegie as an athlete from the age of about 10 or 11. So it's interesting now that I am now there and have been working um, at Leeds Beckett and Carnegie for the last 16 years. But I think all of those experiences were about people believing in me, seeing something in me, and I think then giving me confidence to, to pursue goals and opportunities. A-level PE, GCC PE were were critical in terms of my learning journey of 
giving me motivation to want to then go on to study this topic and this subject area further at university. And at that time, I was living in Leeds, so I, you know, I wanted to explore and spread my wings. And I went to the, um, I went to Loughborough University and absolutely loved that experience, loved the learning there. But I think critically, and if I come back to your, you know, letters to the 15,000 students, I think one of the things that really strikes me in terms of how I experienced that was then about getting involved in other projects and other opportunities whilst I was there. So I think Clyde Williams at that point was was obviously a really inspirational, uh, inspirational person to me in that I worked with him on my dissertation. But then he saw something in me that was clearly what he thought good for a PhD in terms of, I guess, work ethic and diligence and gave me the opportunity to continue from my undergraduate degree through to a PhD there. And that's where I united my love of nutrition with psychology. So my second supervisor there was Professor Stuart Biddle. And I remember at the time at Loughborough, I was that kind of weird person that went between the psychology department and the nutrition department and had, you know, a handle in both camps. And I think that interest in how the brain and the body interact and all of those things really served me well in terms of the interest and research I do now. And all of that then comes into taking in an opportunity to work at UK Athletics as a, a volunteer on their anti-doping policy and support team. It was at, at the time coming out of Loughborough and then moving to Leeds Beckett where that really started to provide the opportunity to research into doping in sport and the use of prohibited substances and methods. That was a volunteer role. You know, that was me giving back to a, a sport that I was really passionate about I threw the discus in the end that was where I focused my athletic efforts um I stopped doing hockey and netball and and really threw myself into throwing and going on to the volunteer policy and support team really gives you a sense of what are the you know what are those who have to deliver the education programs who have to support the athletes what are they grappling with what are the questions that they are asking uh, and really that then started the research program that that we've been doing at Leeds Beckett now since 2005. So that then brings me to Leeds Beckett. I think what's interesting about that journey is I was unsuccessful in my first application to a post there, Um, Mm. but I then reapplied to a temporary position and was taken on to a one-year contract. And, you know, because that's also a signal that failure is very much part of our lives and it's how we embrace those those moments but I've been there since 2003 and I'm now currently the director of research and as you say professor of psychology and behavioral nutrition so there's a bit of a whistle stop tour of of where I come from and where I am now so right there's a lot in there so dot and flow in a pub that sounds like a soap opera to start off with um (laughs) So I'm just wondering whether the pub had any influence on your research direction that's my first thought (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um I'll I'll need to try and try and channel my inner Parkinson with a Barnsley connection there about asking you some questions. Uh, But what what an amazing couple of supervisors you had. Sounds like you've had a very supportive and inspirational route through to where you are at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't have asked for better supervisors in terms of, you know, Clyde and Stuart, just really in terms of the generosity in their time, I reflect on my experience with Clyde at the time, you know, and Stuart have both been heads of department as well while they were supporting me. And what you never felt was that you were 
you were asking them too much. They just had this opportunity and this way of being that made you feel valued and important. And they were supporting many of the students at the same time, but you always felt listened to and heard. And I very much tried to to bring that into how I support and supervise students now. And, you know, that's not always easy to be fully present and focused, but I'm really mindful of how I was made to feel in my supervision experience and just how transformational that really can be. You know, and even now I still am in contact with both Clyde and Stuart, each are doing very different things now, but yeah, very much shaped it. And I think it's that element of providing you with opportunity and they very much allowed me to determine what I wanted to look at. You know, they didn't tell me what to do and that's really critical in in terms of that learning journey, I think. Mm. Okay. So, and you allude there that, that I suppose what comes with that empowerment is is the chance of failing rather than somebody putting the scaffold on everything and and preventing you from failing by nudging you in the right directions. And you allude there to the the fact that you didn't necessarily get that first gig. You mm. had to you had to almost reset some of your ambitions and apply a bit of patience to to getting a full-time role by the sounds of it. Yeah, no, definitely. I remember feeling absolutely devastated at the time that I'd applied for this role and I'd put all my efforts into doing that and, and was unsuccessful. And that was the permanent position that I'd applied for. But I think then, okay, there's another opportunity here. It's a 12-month contract. I ended up there, I think probably then the background helped. I was really delivering lots of different content from anatomy and physiology to leisure lifestyles. And that process then really cemented probably in my early stages at being in Carnegie, my ability to to move around different subject areas, because that is the broad depth of understanding I'd brought and my interest was then brought to life in some of that delivery. I also think that element of, I joke about the, the failure, you know, I still share that now because actually the two colleagues that, that took the post when I was unsuccessful, um, I often laughed with because they left the institution and I've, I've continued on. Um, but all of those learnings are critical and they're, they're things that we then take forward and allow us to, to like you say, reset and, and reconsider, I guess, what's next. Mm. I, I, I like that point about having a, almost an opportunity to, or, or a responsibility, or you're forced into dealing and working with generic topics. And when I first graduated, I, I taught A-level, did some PE and sports studies and so on, you, you classic what you'd expect me to teach that exercise physiology, but I was also doing human biology. I was also doing fundamental biology and I got offered all sorts of chemistry and I think I was offered at one point dog grooming, but I didn't get into that. Um, but not that broad, but, but it really grounded me back into the domain as opposed to what I was hoping for at the time was, was to do a PhD, mm-hmm. which would have narrowed. But actually, once you narrow and then broaden, I think that was, there's some, there's some real benefit in that. Yeah. And I think, I mean, certainly at, at Leeds Beckett and in the Carnegie School, we're really trying to look at how you give that depth of discipline knowledge but really then start to bring it to life in terms of those contexts within which you are, you know, that you apply that knowledge. Because the reality is that no discipline alone can allow us, if we take high performance sport, there's no discipline on its own that can allow an athlete to medal. 
you know, they all, all those disciplines, psychology, physiology, nutrition, biomechanics, you know, they all work together to allow a person to achieve their, their true potential. What we've really got to continue to work at is how do we, how do we find the common ground for some of those disciplines, which might also be situated in different worldviews of what's knowledge and what's understanding, so that those relationships and the conversations that come from bringing those disciplines together really can be more transformational and, and take into account the fact that we're trying to often change behaviour. And that could be from a, a technique perspective, but unless a person is motivated to, to want to change, understands that, unless they have also, they're well fed and, and have the kind of physiological readiness to change, all of those things together means that you just can't always make the change that, that's intended. Um, so I think there's, there's still work to do around being truly interdisciplinary. I think we are increasingly multidisciplinary as a field, but the sweet spot really comes when that interdisciplinary perspective starts to fly. All right. Now we're in danger here of drifting me onto a soapbox and, <laughs> that, and, and that I'm off and running, but that, you know, I'd completely agree that the, that the real work happens between disciplines mm. and potentially between these big modules or topics that, that we, we get boxed into by textbooks and so on. But I will park that and pick up a comment that you made there about, about behavior change and about let's drift in to your technical expertise. You're talking there about readiness or feeling though as though you have to have a need for change for that to happen regardless of for example if i'm talking to an athlete or talking to a businessman and then i'm saying you should be doing this or how about this idea um no matter how good my argument uh if they're not ready to change they're not ready to change is that what i'm hearing yeah and i think you know we can bring that into the context of of nutrition and adherence to nutrition because that's a an, an area where I've got a fantastic, you know, we came back to doctoral supervision. I have a fantastic doctoral student, Megan Bentley, who's been looking at that. She is a nutritionist, but she has a real interest in the psychology of nutrition as I have. And the athletes are very unique in terms of their dietary needs. But they're not robots. You know, can't just say you need this is the adequate energy intake you need. This is your optimal balance of carbohydrate, proteins and fats. This is going to help you prepare, recover and, and have strong immunity. Off you go. And the reality there is that I guess as a field, there's been a great to focus on on knowledge, helping athletes to understand what they need, but then not as much awareness of about the fact that be, behavior is a function of yes knowledge in terms of capability to enact that behavior that you want i.e. adhering to the the nutrition but it's also influenced by social opportunity you know is that then support from others so if peer groups are really not bothered about nutrition they're not bothered about engaging in in adhering in the way that that the the support team are expecting, then that's that's a factor in behaviour. And also then what about the resources in the physical environment? So if um, if the great sport and exercise nutrition team have got a brilliant plan, it's individualised, but yet the training environment never offers any of the foods or um, or meal plans that are appropriate, then that again is another factor that influences the behaviour of the individual. And then you can bring it back to what I talk about readiness and, and that motivation to, to engage in those behaviours that we're looking for. Often 
with so many other competing behaviours that we are responding to. So those emo- those kind of motivations come from a number of factors. And that doesn't just include our beliefs and, and what we think is important and not, but also some of the habits and the impulses that we've got. You know, those habits can be hardwired. Uh, and from a nutrition point of view, that then comes around the role that parents play in meal planning and cooking because if if we are really strongly focusing on a food first approach that then also speaks to well do athletes have the cooking skills to engage in that way so that I guess brings to life that complexity of behavior it's not simply a case of telling someone to do something we've got to look at all the different aspects of behavior that we know are important and we have to kind of intervene at so many multiple different levels all right well that's okay that's opened up the topic for us so but i'm also sensing that the differences between perhaps the or certainly unique to an athlete circumstances is the context and Mm. where they are at their in their career their training load their injury uh the the ups and downs of getting selection and so on these are things that can not only affect their energy requirement but their mood and Mm. their well-being and their fatigue levels um, I suppose there's, there's a whole load of context there that, that we need to be aware of when thinking about what an athlete actually eats. Mm, without a doubt. I mean, with the with Megan's PhD studies, what really came through very strongly there as well was the role of emotion and how emotion is also a driver of behaviour. And where within, I guess, then coming back to the training and the the professional development of of the nutrition team as well how does that factor into awareness of how we then engage athletes into working on on plans for for their nutrition that then connectivity to the the sport and exercise psychology teams and the the psychiatry teams and all others within any institute or system because it's recognizing that that is a big factor in in decision making and yet we don't necessarily provide the necessary support to recognize that okay so psychologists advising nutrition almost that or you certainly have to have an understanding of the changes in behavior over time that that you would need to be sensitive to in order to try and convince or dis, or, or cajole or or train and develop somebody around the nutrition decisions mm-hmm. absolutely yeah and i think we've we've certainly seen where that's starting to happen now and that, for me, the future opportunities that will come from taking those different perspectives into account and services working with each other to recognise the interactions of of all of the, the people working within that system is really critical. And I'll give another example that if you think about the opportunity, the social influences around a, an athlete, if you've got a nutrition team providing really evidence-informed guidance that's going to meet those highly specialised needs of, of a high-performance athlete. And all seems well, yet within the, the system, there's another uh, support personnel who is, probably spends more time with the athlete, like a, an S&C coach, for example, who then may be giving completely opposite guidance and advice. And that's then the challenge you've got, because you've got mixed messages then potentially coming within one system. And that becomes really complex and and confusing for athletes. Uh, And sometimes some of those messages also might be a quicker fix message rather than some of the more 
planned meal approaches to to food and and performance. Right. Okay. So um, let me try and put this delicately. Mm. Actually, actually, I won't. Um, If you've got a practitioner or a professional who's effectively trying to culture dependency, I've got opinions on this. Mm. I've got thoughts on this. Uh, you should listen to me because because I'm close to you and and you trust me, but perhaps beyond their area of expertise and not having the sense and sensibility to to point to other people that that would have that greater depth of of understanding. Yeah, without a doubt, you know where you've got then SNCs providing supplement advice is is one of I guess a really risky area because they haven't had the training. And um, they don't have the understanding that's necessary to be providing guidance to athletes yet will often do so. And, you know, you can then look at some of the probably further conflicts that can come in that some of those those support personnel may also be sponsored by some of those companies. And you get into a whole host of then complexities within a system that helps you to see it's not just a case of telling an athlete what to do and then expecting them to to do that without any further intervention or support. So I think it's knowing the environment, it's knowing some of those those barriers to maybe the behavior that people are trying to to engage with and it's taking a really comprehensive look at that and working collectively to say okay if this is our our aims across all the different services what common approach might we take to thread all of that together you know not we we found working uh, through Megan's PhD sports nutrition largely is not particularly theoretically informed you know it still is very much dominated by the the positivist paradigm you know the physiological assessments and the metabolic assessments there's less effort being invested in thinking about how behaviorally uh, we engage in in sports nutrition and providing that sound advice okay so so uh, maybe I'll ask you a little bit about perhaps some some guidance around that in a moment but i just like to ask how do you find clarity in this area when we're talking about knowledge base context resources social norms not influencers within a team how how are you as a researcher finding mm. that you're able to give something concrete at the end of a, a study for example yeah we've increasingly over years we've we've kind of i guess through experience thought about what theoretical frameworks might help us to do just as you say to be much more aware of the application of that knowledge and increasingly we as a research team at, at Lee's Beckett are engaging with the the capability opportunity model of behavior Susan Mickey's uh, and colleagues model which actually does break down multiple theories of behavior into one almost meta theory that says for any behavior you have to have the capability you have to have the opportunity and you have to have the motivation but there is a process that we can go through to look at that to then give opportunities to apply that in practice so it's very much about trying to diagnose look at the behavior and diagnose what activities and actions need to happen and then use that to provide some really obvious and 
applied recommendations for, for practice. And I think that's worked really well. And we're continuing to kind of focus that. So it's how do we take what we know and that complexity but break it into a way that can be utilised in practice. And having used the COMBI, the Capability, Opportunity, Motivation model, with high-performance sport and receiving the feedback about the value of that, there's a there's an engagement and an interest in that that we'll continue to pursue. Can you, can you give those again? COMBI, is that, that's not a boiler, is it? That's uh... It's not a boiler. It sounds like a boiler. No, it's, it's the Capability, Opportunity, Motivation model of behaviour. Right, gotcha. And it sits within a broader behavior change wheel, because what's really nice about this model is it sits individual human behavior at the center of the model, but recognizes that in order to bring about change. So say we've got an issue with capability and, you know, in terms of nutrition, there still sits that that not Oh, and you'll know there's so much noise out there at the moment about what we should eat, what we shouldn't eat, when we should eat it, how we should eat it, etc. And social media is fantastic, but it has provided a huge platform for so many people who maybe you could argue do not have the knowledge and understanding to be providing the guidance and advice they're currently providing. But we recognise then that, that capability is, is, a, is a challenge, but it's not then just a case of sitting down in an education session and, and delivering that knowledge. But capability also sits around skills and competencies. So if you look at sports nutrition, how are people cooking? Do they know how to cook? Do they know how to meal plan? All of those things start to come in. And we therefore don't just have education, we have training of skills. Um, and then it also, so there's many things that it, it really brings together. And I think it has an application of knowledge that will speak very much to practitioners. And we're in the process of, of publishing work in this area, but critically working with organizations in helping them apply it. Okay. Tri- tricky question. I might have to have a couple of goes at this to, to try and see if I can get a, uh, for you to be happy enough to answer it. <laughs> mm. Um, so what what would be some of your key nuggets of, of findings to, to be able to help people uh, influence others, particularly around adherence to nutrition? What would be your um, advice to people? One of the first things is to recognise that just by telling them to do something doesn't mean they're going to do it. And I think one of the, the nuggets now is how are we training athletes to be able to do to be able to adhere that not only speaks to the performance goals now but also our commitment to those lifelong transitions into being a post-athlete so there's a nugget there because we've definitely found with our research that athletes are often controlled so much in their environments they're given everything they don't have to almost think for themselves that then when they leave that environment that's quite a hard transition and that is something I think we we should consider. The element around that role conflict within an environment, that has to be something that we can listen out for. So that if we have got individuals in an environment that are going against the guidance and advice that's well-informed, well-intentioned and evidence-based, that we start to do something about that and we don't just, I guess, turn a blind eye to it. So there's something there about having difficult conversations and about making sure everybody is on the same page with the same expectations. I think the other thing that also speaks to this 
in terms of the nutrition that we found, again, coming back to that model and the opportunity, we've got to recognise that sometimes there are really stretched services. And nutrition is one example where maybe the nutritionist might only have the opportunity to see an athlete if they're lucky once a month. You know, whereas some of the other practitioners are blessed and, and privileged to maybe spend every day of the week with those individuals. So there's something about looking at the frequency with which some of those other services are interacting uh, and whether we've got that balance right within within our high performance system. Um, so those are just mm. just a, just three examples of things that we've identified. We've identified role conflict. We've identified this issue around too much devolved responsibility Um and also we've identified that issue around stretch and resources are tight. I think that's also really difficult within within our high performance system. And are they always are they always allocated in the direction where the most impact can be made? Mm, OK, all right. So the, um, can I just quickly go back through those that I'm, I particularly want to pick up on just telling? Um, I, I love that. And I think that's um that's probably one of my fundamental assessments of whether somebody's actually ready to work. I say in a high performance sport, but probably work with anybody. If they just turn up and just tell them stuff, um, they're not ready to work. If they're there to find questions and, and see what their, their needs are and, and so on. There are a number of professional football clubs, for example, that are are thinking rather than employ a nutritionist who's going to be spread really thinly across a number of players and so on and so forth and try and influence them, try and influence their chef, their own personal chef at home, um, that actually what they're going to do is just provide all the food for them um, mm-hmm. so that it's, it's just removing that decision-making for them so it becomes easier. Mm-hmm. So that seems as though it's a, it's a fair solution to remove the behaviour, change, uh, nudging people, coercing the people. It, moves, it removes a barrier, doesn't it, instantly. Yeah. But, but you're then referencing that just telling methodology doesn't work mm. for people who perhaps are going to be um, transitioning in and out of a support team because mm. just telling means that they don't create their own resourcefulness to develop the skills beyond their own sporting career is that what I'm hearing absolutely I think that's a really important point for us all to consider you know working in the field is that a barrier to nutrition adherence is the the capability to cook and to to meal plan and to have um those you know to fulfill our nutritional requirements so a short-term solution therefore and a really convenient solution is well let's just give them everything they need and actually for many athletes they'll say that's brilliant that's just what we want we want to be just given everything because it makes our life easier and then we can focus on the important stuff which is the training but that then gives us some I guess fundamental questions about what are we trying to do within sport and what what is the value that sport is also offering in the long term? Because if we do take away every opportunity to develop skills and competencies that will serve as well in later life, not everyone is going to stay in a high performance sport environment. You know, not everyone is always going to have that opportunity for a chef to look after them. And one might argue that without some of those skills and competencies, then we're also setting people up for failure post sport careers. And that also speaks to some of the the mental health concerns that people have got post-sport because they haven't been prepared 
for living a life outside of a really controlled and structured environment. So their self-regulatory skills are just not being developed because it's much easier to do everything for individuals so that they adhere to what they're being told to do. But what we're then not doing is we're not creating thinking self-regulating human beings and and there's many I think there's real concerns to that as well because you know if I if I transition into the the concern around doping what happens at times then is if people are not given the opportunity to think for themselves and to make their own decisions and to ask questions that is where we're also in a really risky situation and where people are increasingly vulnerable about making choices that are ultimately against the rules of sport. So, yeah, I'm really I think we've got as a field to really consider what are some of the unintended consequences of maybe some of some of those short term solutions. Well, that's quite that's quite a tension then, isn't it? So I'm thinking about David Gillick, uh, track and field runner, uh, Irish based and he was based over in Loughborough when I was when I was based there and I caught up with him recently and he talked about not having the support the support team and he felt that a lot of his his training partners were were given everything on a plate and he mm. didn't have that and so the his competitive spirit was sparked around well I'm going to do that anyway and I'm going to do that probably better than you by developing my own um, my own skills, and he he went off and did some some uh, some catering training, for example, and he then started to develop his own cooking skills. He actually he actually won uh, Ireland's Master Chef, so um, he did go he did very well in that area. So he's actually achieved mm-hmm. in that bit too. But your link there to doping is interesting in the sense of if people are isolated and don't have almost like a foil of people to bounce ideas about and get support and, and help their decision-making, um, that can lead to, I suppose, compromising of ethics and morals and taking shortcuts. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And I also think it, and it also gets into the habit formation of just not asking questions of why, so why do I need to to eat this or why do I need to take this supplement? What's that going to do? Because you get so used to just going along with what is being told of you that therefore you're not. And also maybe don't develop the confidence to ask questions of, well, what, what is that and why do I need to have it? So I'm not saying there's a direct causation there, but what I'm saying is if we look at some of the the research and the stories that are told around those who have um who have been sanctioned for doping, you know, there are cases where we've we've seen people, particularly younger athletes, say, I just did what I was told. You know, if you look back to East Germany, there are some really harrowing stories there where young athletes were given tablets without their knowledge of what they were and just did what they were told because that's that's what they essentially were told to do. You don't question those in positions of power and responsibility. They've got your best interests at heart. Be assured of that. Just go along with what, what they're doing. And, you know, with the precarious nature of performance sport, I think athletes are vulnerable to not wanting to, to rock the boat and be seen as not going along with that kind of dominant approach because then 
there's someone that's probably waiting in the wings that's ready to come forward and and to do so. So all of those, again, that speaks to that complexity of behaviour, doesn't it? It's it's not just simply about telling people what to do and expecting them to do it. There are so many factors that then can be overwhelming to people that ultimately will tip them in, in, in various different um, behaviours. Okay, so the, to the fundamental question of why do people cheat then, one of mm. the answers is that's just the way it's done around here. And, you know, the Lance Armstrong documentary on Netflix, Stop at Nothing, there was, Mm. it's always such a strong emphasis of in the 90s, that's what people did. If you wanted to Mm -hmm. be a Grand Tour rider, you doped. Um, So so it sounds like there's the social norm of that dysfunction. Um, In terms of, in terms of an individual basis, does that then just succumb, people just to succumb to that or is it still reconciled in their psyche? I think the power of the social group is really, is really strong because you can have, you know, you hear the, the stories of those who have come forward, who've tested positive and said, you know, I was really, I had very strong anti-doping attitudes. I really believed in the importance of, of doing this the right way. And then over time, those that strong moral identity can be overrided by the climate within which those individuals are are training and competing. Uh, and we, I mean, we've just done a, a really nice experimental study actually that Nick Stanger, my colleague, has led. That's really shown that you can have high levels of moral identity, but if you then prime an individual with what we say a really controlling climates you know the sporting context within which they're situated that does justify the need for doping because everyone else is doing it and there's a real push around that that it's very hard for individuals to some extent to overcome that external pressure and that external reinforcement and you do you start to then you start to disengage from that wrongdoing by justifying your behaviour and reasoning it because everyone else is doing it. And that is just what we do. Um, And we hear athletes saying even now that, yeah, you can't succeed in high performance sport without doping. Um, It's what you have to do. And I I recall a story when I was a discus thrower, actually. Um, I had a, a coach who was a fantastic support for me, but as a discus thrower, strength and power is really significant to how far you can chuck the discus. And I was kind of getting to around the 50 meter mark. And at the time was was considering a PhD. And, you know, one of the things he said to me was for, for the next step, really, now you're going to probably want to be using prohibited substances. I don't want you to be doing that. It's not what you're going to do. But that that also is a signal, isn't it, around what is necessary to succeed. And for for young athletes who are coming into to performance sport, if their significant influences are saying the only way you're going to succeed here is this way. Oh, and by the way, uh, you're not going to be caught because the detection mechanisms are they're way far behind. You know the the pharmacology that we can apply. Apply. You know why wouldn't you do it? And we we've, we've had some research that that even said that from a from a an athlete themselves. They had a coach who said on the the position of human growth hormone all of the lads are using it this is in a a a rugby context i don't know why you wouldn't use it and it can potentially earn you another forty thousand pounds a year if you take it that's really a significant influencer in that system Uh, and then if all of the peers are starting to engage 
it no longer feels like it's not normal because that becomes that sense of normal. And there's so many influence around that, re-justifying that as being everyone else is doing it, therefore it's okay. All right, there's there's a lot there in terms of, I'm thinking about the kind of in-group, out-group dynamics there versus your fundamental intrinsic values of what mm. you, th- your morals of thinking about what's right and wrong, but being pulled by this social connection and I don't want to be isolated mixed in with my goals are to be um and it's almost like that well the distal goal is is for for me to climb the mountain but the proximal goal probably means that I've actually got to break my own values in order to do that that's that's quite a conflict there and but also the vicarious learning aspect what everyone else is doing it what my role models are so I someone ahead of me is doing it that's that's quite a, a to- an intoxicating mix there i can imagine mm. that, that that why people succumb to that mm. and i think you 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 were really clear there around those goal direct it's a goal you know doping is ultimately a goal directed behavior so whether that is for performance enhancement but we've also seen it within research we've done that suggests it's also about protection of health you know so some athletes will argue well the use of these substances allows me to get bigger and stronger and therefore I'm less likely to get injured uh, and the knocks won't be as hard you know so I think we've pre- we've previously the narrative around doping has been it's a it's a cheat someone who makes these decisions because they just want to get ahead and they want to win at all costs but when you really start to interview those who have used prohibited substances and methods and you start to unravel the complexities of those environments that they were situated within and the decisions that they made you know then you do start to see the vulnerability that exists within our sporting system at times because that vulnerability can come from the fact that if they don't succeed, if we take the winning at all costs, if they're not successful in the period of time that they've been given, then it's a, a pretty sharp exit out of that system. Um, and then the next person kind of arrives in the system. That win at all costs scenario, and we've, we've talked about that within, within the UK in terms of then the duty of care review and all of that that goes, okay, where's the priority around welfare? And that longer term view about success and development is really critical there because that's less likely to lead to people feeling I've got to make this decision now because if I don't, I'm not going to get recontracted. I'm not going to get further funding and I'm out of that system. And I think that then speaks to the importance around the identity of an athlete and what are we doing to support athletes to have identities beyond their sport. That's really difficult in high performance though, isn't it? Because there's so many competing demands. But those who have transitioned well, you could argue, have also had an eye into the future and have been supported through their sports to learn within that environment at the same time and to develop some of those transferable skills, you know, coming back to the cooking, that are also critical post-high-performance post sport. Right. I, I've got hundreds of notes here. I've basically got a diagram, of, a spider diagram that could go in any different direction here. But mm-hmm. this, is what I'm, this is what I'm thinking next, is that you've, we've talked a bit about social pressures and, mm. and the effect of significant others, mentors, coaches, and so on, of guiding that. Um, this seems as though it's 
it's such a, an influence of other people, the environment, the context, particularly in relation to team sports. You've mentioned uh, rugby. I know some of your research has been in, in rugby. Uh, Lance Armstrong, US Postal Service, etc. That team environment. Mm. Um, are there any differences in why people violate doping rules in individual sports. So if somebody or some individually, I'm going out there and I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to go and create it. Um, is that, is there any difference in their approach versus getting just pulled along by the team? Yeah, I think that there will most definitely be. I mean, that's the thing with the behavior. There's no one type of behavior. And there's, I mean, doping in itself, there are, there's 10 anti-doping rule violations at the moment. We only ever think of the presence of a substance. For individual athletes who are not part of a team, who have maybe not been uh, encouraged uh, and nudged in the direction of using these substances, the, the motivation can often be for those individuals actually curiosity you know motivation to see what what my body can do with some of these substances and we've definitely seen that to be the case and then what's also interesting from from an an individual user of prohibited substances if we take anabolic steroids as an example that there was a curiosity of what can this do to my body and what can I then achieve through the use of these substances but then it's one one user one said to me that I didn't expect for this to become a lifelong habit I honestly expected to just have one go, do a cycle, and then I'd stop and, and carry on with life. But what was interesting for them there was that the, the physiological and, and I guess the changes in their stature was quite significant. You know, there's quick quick wins can, can occur from anabolic steroids because they're anabolic in nature and, and muscle building. That obviously led to changes. They were really significant in terms of their performance capability. But not only that, the social reinforcement of what that person then looked like was really strong. You know, lots of lots of positive reinforcement about what they looked like. And then their ability to stop that and to go back to returning to what was previously normal, that was very, very difficult to do. And then and, and for that individual, that's become a lifelong habit of around 30 years. So it's there are definitely individual differences. There are definitely even differences within teams themselves. And I think what's really interesting at the moment, you know, we've talked a lot about the, the doping teams. Where do we now look at what is it about teams with a very strong identity around the importance of undertaking high performance sport within the rules, you know, and, and, and playing by the rules? And Social media is a great place in terms of transforming the way that the media and the athletes are interacting with each other. And you'll, you'll notice it yourself, Steve, there's a much greater focus now on clean sport. Now, we've not necessarily defined what clean sport is, but from an engagement of a community with that messaging, more people are speaking out about the importance of clean sport. More people are speaking out about how we can achieve success without the use of prohibited substances. But with that comes a recognition that it takes time. And as we mentioned earlier on in our conversation, there's perseverance and patience that's required there. It's not a quick fix. That's now, I think, empowering greater responsibility as well for the way that you know we only have to look at sponsors and the role that sponsors play in those environments whether that's for an individual athlete and also individuals who then sit within team sports 
because they invest a huge amount and there's no two ways about it. Funding has an impact on the way people behave. And that's interesting now that the example, I don't know if you've heard of the the, the Clean Sport Collective in the US have brought in brands and ambassadors that have committed to only working with coaches and and teams where there hasn't been history of of doping in the past. There are consequences to those teams if they don't um, adhere to the rules and regulations of of anti-doping. And there's a a bit of a movement going forward where then you create the cult-like approach that can occur in, in doping teams with those who are are very committed to to um to not breaking the rules hmm. so um a couple of other concepts have come up there so yeah and you mentioned one of the ideas that you've heard an example about somebody who's citing injury prevention as a mm-hmm. as a a rationale but behind their doping um I'm interested to hear how people reconcile the fact that they're cheating. Um, I, I once spoke to, uh, should I say, I just say a, a coach from another country and they cited to me, you've got it all wrong in the UK. Uh, it, you think that if you take the substance, it's cheating. We think if you get caught taking the substance, it's cheating. And so there was a, there was a splitting of hairs that made the world of difference to how that was thought of. But ultimately they were saying, this is, this is okay. Um, how do people live with that duplicitous? I'm competing. I'm, I'm saying I'm passing tests, etc. but ultimately I know I'm doing this. How do people cope with that? Because within, I guess, within the processes in their brain, they'd be, they're able to rationalize that in the way that we've talked about in there saying, well, everybody else is doing it. Therefore I'm not cheating. They are essentially justifying their behavior through the behavior of others. And that what's interesting with what you said there is because we've been so focused, I think in the past around detection deterrence through the use of drugs tests. And because we recognize that there are ways to circumvent those tests and, and they can be really sophisticated, as we've also heard in recent cases, that we've almost said, well, that's the definition of cheating. But ultimately, it then comes down to individual responsibility to, to the rules and regulations that govern sport. And we sign up to those in, in, in virtue of the fact that we are taking part in sport. And it's those that matter most rather than the narrative of, well, you're not going to. And this speaks to what I talked about, the coach who said, well, you're never going to test positive, therefore it's okay. So what are we doing around the the way that we are essentially creating those climates and systems where that isn't even a conversation to be had. Now that's not going to happen overnight. And do you know, there'll be, there'll be times where we won't even be able to totally eradicate that because we can't, we can't ever eliminate some of these uh, behaviors uh, and we'd be foolish to think we can, but I think we can do more to put in place in systems, the likelihood for some of these issues to be raised. And I think one of the things that we have seen change the way we look at the prevention of doping is just in recent years, those really big high scandal cases 
with multiple people involved, multiple coaches, doctors, medical, all of those, the interaction and the complexity really being brought to life through uh, the situations in, and we won't need to name them, but there are many as we know. What's come to light there is why did that come forward? It was because people came out and spoke out about their experience of that situation. They had the courage to do so. And I think we do have to think think really carefully now. How are we educating the next generation of athlete support personnel to take their responsibilities for protecting the health and well-being of athletes as being first and foremost? You know, that's in all of our ethical codes of conduct. But where are we helping the next generation have those difficult conversations build scenarios of what happens if because we found just in the conversations we've had with with coaches and athlete support personnel when we ask them what would you do in this situation they've never even thought about it they've never been asked to consider it and therefore they've you know if we think about behavioral plan they've got no action plan to know what to do in that situation and but I do think the the speaking up and the creating environments where people will tackle behaviours that are indications of wrongdoing, not just failing a test, but not adhering to the rules and regs, that's where we've got greater opportunity in the future. And I think that also applies to those sports or teams or athletes that are, are standing up to say, we're going to do this clean. And mm. But rather than just push that particular message to be much more um, communicative around the gray area that they're now then sitting in because mm-hmm. they're con- they will be conflicted by the pressure to win so that there's press and that there's coverage and that there's success to that investment, but equally that they want to do it well. And doing it well means that I think that if it's if it's too much in the grey area, I mean, I think effectively working right up to the line of what's acceptable and not, and and actually sharing with people their thinking around this. Um, I can think of a number of different initiatives that I was involved with where ultimately you're trying to allow an athlete to perform at their best. It might mean that they've got to take some medication or a therapeutic use exemption and what's the chances of them needing that and actually describing the process that you've gone through and the thinking and making that more open rather than just thinking as soon as we have this conversation people are just going to point the finger do you see what i mean Mm, absolutely i mean i think the therapeutic use exemption scenario is really critical at the moment because you know what's really it's really clear in terms of what a therapeutic use exemption should be sought for. And that is a medical, you know, a therapeutic need that this is about the health of the athlete. And it's therefore necessary to permit the use of what is a prohibited substance because there's no other alternatives for that athlete to use. And that their health is the priority in prescribing in that substance what's the challenge we found at the moment and um hayden allen's one of one of my phd students who's interested in 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 looking at therapeutic use exemptions and he's found with some interviews with with cyclists that, that he's undertaken recently there's now a real stigma around the use of therapeutic use exemptions because people are so scared that if they've got one, that they're going to be accused of cheating, of, of not playing by the rules, and, and they're going to be discriminated against. And therefore, we've had a knock-on effect 
because there is a suggestion that there has been a manipulation of the, the therapeutic use exemption system in order to prioritise performance over health, we've had the knock-on effect of now putting people off using them, which then could be harmful to their health in the first place. But the fact that those conversations can start to happen, that people can ask those questions, that we're creating the space and the safety to do that without fear of recourse or retaliation, I mean, that is really fundamental. And I'm not sure in the past we've created those spaces because if you have asked questions, you've either been seen as a troublemaker or, well, maybe it's because they're doing something they shouldn't be doing. You know, and even I found with our research team, when we've invited people to participate in research, it's almost like, oh, no, I don't want to do that because if I do, you'll think we've got a problem. And that fear and stigma that is naturally attached to the word doping um, that is a barrier to any intervention in the first place, because that also then speaks to the fear. You know, behaviour is also about emotion and fear can be a significant driver of emotion. And therefore, the fear of getting something wrong. And this has come from coaches, actually, that we've we've worked with. They've said to some extent, I'd rather not know what the rules and regulations are because they're really complex and I don't want to get it wrong. And therefore, I can't be held to account because I don't know what they are. Can you see? So all of those have have real consequences. But at the heart of all of this, and there's some really nice work beyond sport around those fearless organisations, you know, um, the work that Amy Edmondson's doing, the work that Brene Brown's doing around having difficult conversations but you have to create the right environment for those conversations to happen. We've seen it with Boeing, haven't we, where conversations haven't been enabled. You know, there's there's some the whistleblowers that have come forward around that. And that for me in the future is how are we enabling systems where people don't have side corridor conversations about some of the things that are happening, but that they have them direct and they're not fearful of what might happen in doing that that they are celebrated, that any any meeting or opportunity where a performance team comes together, that is the question of what are we not seeing, what am I not hearing? And that if someone does bring something together and, you know, bring something forward, the, the leader's reaction to that at that point in time is so fundamental because if it's welcomed and, and received with positive intention, more people are likely to bring further information forward. But if it's, oh, you know, disagreed with straight away, that's not what we do around here, that's nonsense, then you're already silencing voices again. So I'm optimistic, I think, about the future in relation to people who have already come forward, the lessons that we've learned from people speaking up about wrongdoing within some of those systems, but also individually. Uh, and I think we as a, a sporting community could really look at this more more collectively across all the different disciplinary areas, all the different lines of service, every single hierarchy of an organisation. But think, you know, what is it within our culture and climate that is allowing people to raise concerns um, at the point of which we can then do something and act rather than than remain silenced? Because doping is a silenced behaviour. It's highly stigmatised. And if a person finds themselves in a situation where they don't know what to do, actually, if we've put in positions in place where people are supported throughout and where people are asking questions all the time to just kind of check in with people, um, then I think we start to create a much more enabling environment rather than a controlling and disabling environment.
Wow. I mean, I asked you about TUEs, but you've just inspired me about human life and behavior and how we <laughs> how we're working in teams and honesty and openness. Thank you. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> well, and that's I guess that that speaks to the real complexity of of all of these things we're talking about. And I think if there's anything we can do it is raise awareness that a lot of these things are really not black and white issues and that there are multiple interacting actions that take place. And I think once we start to, to look at it in that way and recognise it in that way, then there's there's greater possibilities about how we act and how we support each other and, and how we move forward. I think that's that's critical, isn't it? And you must feel that. I, I mean, I'd be interested to know your experiences around around those those challenges you faced. Have, have you ever witnessed anything that you were not comfortable with but but didn't know what to do? You know, what what's your experience been? Uh, well, I, I mean, I would, I suppose there's always the looming question of you just never know. And, but I have been heartened over 25 years of probably only raising my eyebrow once or twice. Uh, once was very clear um, where I turned up in my Olympic kit and someone said, Oh shit, the dopers are here. And, uh, so that was, that was quite clear. And that was, that was actually reported to the governing body. And then maybe once where you think, God, that the improvement somebody's making is, is quite remarkable. Um, but then when you start to dig a bit deeper, actually, they're, they're all legitimate. I, the, the number of things that allowed that person to accelerate at that moment in time, well, it's just, it was just a perfect storm for them. Um, but I've really been heartened by the the animosity against that doping community. I mean, we mentioned before we started recording people like Kelly Southerton, who you said you trained with. I'm intrigued, actually. Was that netball or discus? That was discus. Oh, so okay. when, yeah. Um, yeah, Kelly and I did a warm weather training. Gosh, we must have been 18, 19 at the time. Um, she was far more superior in her athletic right. capability than I was. Uh, but yeah, I mean... And you hear now, I think that also is inspiring in relation to there are ripples of doping that extend beyond the focus on the individual athlete who, uh, for one reason or another, has used prohibited substances or has, has not spoken up or all of those things. For Kelly, you know, the ripples of of not having a moment on the podium multiple times, she'll never know, you know, the, the kind of financial uh, limitations that can come from that and, and all of those those ripples into her life and the lives of her coaches and all around her, you know, they're really significant as well. And it's only really been in recent years, I guess, because we've got that 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 10 year process now that we're seeing the stories coming forward of the impact of others. And, you know, that I think that is also motivating people to recognise their responsibility to be a cultural architect of sport, because that's the other side to this, which is really interesting. When we talk to coaches and other athlete support personnel, they'll often say, well, I don't need to know about that because it's just not this issue in my sport or in my context. And we hear that a lot. But then when you see about the potential impact on on their athletes, you get greater buy-in, you get greater engagement. People are therefore more likely to look out for things. And, 
yeah it's it's just it's incredibly sad when those moments are are taken but it's also I'm very sensitized to the fact as well that it's incredibly sad that maybe an athlete has been put in a position where they were so controlled and coerced and were unable to make decisions due to their vulnerability and the impact that that doping label then has on their life you know it's all the different directions where I'm very mindful of impact and and that's critical as well. Yeah. And I think actually uh, my, my further reflection would be that we do need to be um, more open and direct about how in the gray area, we're trying to add what I call pixels. So white and black pixels so that we're we're operating that area up to, up to the rules uh, as any high performance system that's trying to get the most out of, of their their athletes and push push athletes to a higher level of performance than perhaps they would have done without some support. But the other reflection is that it's a it's a really enriching and empowering conversation to have with an athlete to say you don't need to cheat. We can help you uh, get improved performance by sports science support and mm. there'll be there'll probably be some trolls out there listening to this going that's that's poppycock but mm. when you start thinking about the monitoring on a daily basis the the subtle symptoms that you can pick up from a, from an athlete and giving them that personalized support and care means that you're able to respond to what they're experiencing every day and able to problem solve and innovate that person, that, that, that scenario and take them forward on a higher level of improvement and trajectory than they might not uh, normally be able to do that. And I'm not sure that with a, with a blanket approach of systematic doping that they're in tune with that enough because they don't necessarily, because they're introducing another agent. Um, so I think that that is a really positive conversation to have with an athlete to say we're gonna we're gonna work it out from you as opposed to just trying to shortcut this yeah and you know asking the the athlete about their needs really truly tuning into what what motivates and excites them and I think you know we we talked earlier around the framework we're applying to a lot of work that that combi the the motivational angle is what drives our behaviour. And you hit it really nicely there when you said, what are we doing for athletes to support them in developing their belief system that they are capable of achieving their goals without the use of prohibited substances and methods? And that there is an element to that then around a long-term vision for that. That There is no, you know, there are, there are quick quick solutions to performance but they are the ones that are against the rules of sport so we it's marrying that up and it's also then trying to be really minded and listening out within environments where there are then individuals that are countering that narrative who are saying oh you know don't believe that if you want to succeed this is what you need to do so i think there's 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 real opportunities for us to to work together to to look at that and that also speaks to then the the risk of injury so injury is a risk conducive situation for for doping because often that means people are taken away from what could be a really supportive environment that does prevent the use of these substances because there's lots of conversations 
protecting and supporting athletes when they're injured they may be taken out of that environment and they may also find themselves in another environment in their rehab where potentially the use of some of these products may be commonplace you know gyms are a concern at the moment because of the uh, the growing increase in in substances that for gym users who are not subject to anti-doping rules and regulations are permitted for their own personal use you potentially put them in a vulnerable situation of seeing what you know, quick recovery can occur. But again, that's not the right recovery because that is against the rules of sport. So I think there's all sorts of different ways that we can look at that. But ultimately, it's having the conversation. It's bringing lots of this evidence and our insights together collectively and going, how might we look at this in a different way? And how might we look at this in a different way from an education perspective? Because arguably, anti-doping education has been driven by compliance. You know, organisations are really fearful that if they don't tell people what they need to know from a rules and regs perspective, they're going to be in trouble because they've not done their job. And what we're missing, I think, at times is is some of those other behavioural aspects of what it means to to act on, on instruction that is beyond just, well, if I've told them this, they're going to do it. So I think that also comes back to our earlier conversations of, trying to be much more systematic, evidence-informed around the different drivers of behaviour and, and the things that do ultimately determine what, what we do and why we do it, and be much more engaged in bringing more people into that agenda, into that conversation, and that we're not just seeing anti-doping as a bolt-on education session that you have to do. And I've heard this said, you know, just go listen to them, 40 minutes, it's done, and then we can crack on with the real work. That in itself is harmful also. Love that conversations have the conversation uh it sounds like you're broaching that you're leading that you seems you're a pioneer in this area of effectively it's a complex and controversial area and rather than bury your head in the sand or our head in the sand and let's because we can't reduce this down to a single factor influencing another factor therefore we we won't look at it from a scientific point of view you've you're having the conversation about it Mm. yeah and i think one of the advantages we've got um the research team at, at leeds beckett has multiple different people working on on different questions that all come together you know so we've even in the last 12 months we've we've worked with the World Anti-Doping Agency on a project on whistleblowing, on speaking up about wrongdoing. You know, that involved over 400 participants in in looking at that. And there's been so little research done on, on whistleblowing, on doping in sport, but also just generally on whistleblowing in sport as well. It's very difficult to find, I mean, the evidence to guide any strategy or policy or support or education that we move forward with that. So we've been looking at that. We've also been looking at uh, the the situation around supplementation and and the challenges that athletes are navigating in relation to knowing how to make a decision on whether to use a, a supplement or not, which is a permitted um, product oftentimes, but is fraught with challenge and stress for athletes in relation to the risks of them them taking a product that may not have a declared product on the la- uh, substance on the label that ultimately is also prohibited. And we've been looking at the complexity of that decision making and considering how, again, how do we unite multiple discipline groups, the psychologists and nutritionists, 
all of them coming together to say, okay, how might we provide better support in our system so that athletes aren't scared to death about knowing whether they should take a, a protein shake or whether they should take creatine or what all of those things or actually on the other side of it, you know, all oh, this pre-workout looks really good. It's offering loads of uh, loads of um, guarantees of my performance. I'm really enticed by that. Well, where do we support them to look at the decision-making process of using that? And all of those things come together to say, well, at the moment, if we take supplements, as a, and again, I've moved around again into a, a different sphere, but it highlights, I guess, our work across multiple agendas at the moment. The current decision to use a supplement where you're told to assess the need, assess the risk and assess the consequence. So athletes, therefore, who are told that independently are told to then go and seek support from a professional well, hopefully they've got access to that. Many don't. And therefore, many are having to make the need judgment quite in isolation. And that in itself is quite scary if they're then going to social media and looking for that need uh, in a place where it's not always evidence informed. Assess the risk. Um, well, there are now multiple third party uh, certification programs that they can use but again that's in a different place to maybe where they're looking at assessing the need and when you go to a third party certification platform there's lots of arguably substances and supplements on there that maybe have not got a really strong evidence base and that are scientifically shown to have value at certain times in certain conditions and for certain individuals and then to assess a consequence, well, that's also really difficult because the consequence often has been around failing a drugs test. And we've probably not got the right balance around, well, what maybe could be some of the consequences to health. So that's another one that indicates the way we're seeing it in the whole, rather than just saying, well, let's not, let's just tell athletes not to use supplements because they're bad. We kind of need to get underneath that more, more carefully and in a more nuanced and, and comprehensive way. And then that also links to some work we've been doing with parents. You know, parents are a, a real potentially protective factor, but very few are actively engaged in, in understanding how to protect their you, you know, children, essentially, from, from forming habits that could in the future put them at risk. Uh, but then that also speaks to sports grappling with how to best engage parents. You know, the US will often come out quite strongly because they are kind of almost trying to keep parents out. But if we don't let parents in and we don't understand the role that they can play and they don't understand the role that they can play, that's another group, arguably, who are influential, but that we're not tapping into their potential to protect and support and to also be vigilant and to be looking out for any risks and vulnerabilities within the environments maybe that, that their children are uh, competing and, and participating in. So that speaks mm. to our approach, really, which is to see this in the whole and to try and pull multiple multiple strands together as a, a whole system approach, really. See this as a whole. And that, that's such a novel approach. Listening to you, another complex area there around supplements, but... Um, I listened to listening to you thinking about parents, supplements, doping, and uh, I had a had a lovely conversation with my mum once, which was um, she came up and said, "Look, I I'm a bit concerned about all this in the press about EPO, and um, I, I find it really helps me." And I said, "I beg your pardon," <laughs> and she said, "Oh, I saw I saw that all this admission from 
Lance Armstrong. He's been taking EPO, but I've been taking it for years. And I think it's, it's, it's make, it makes me feel great. And I said, where did you get it from? And she said, oh, I just get it from Boots. I said, can you show me it? And uh, she, <laughs> she reached into the cupboard and got evening primrose oil out. And I... <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I think I think we're all right on the on the supplements uh, there. You go for it. And, and she said, "Does it? Will it help me improve my endurance?" I said, "Yeah, it probably will, Mum." Well, except <laughs> I mean that's just brilliant, isn't it? And that also speaks to what we talked around. You know, bringing back to what we know about behaviour, children and, and young adults, uh, young adolescents coming through sport, they're forming their habits already. You know, those habit formations are happening within that talent pathway of, you know, the food first approach and that they do learn how to cook and that parents are engaged in that rather than, oh, here's a supplement, off you go at 14, that'll give you your protein needs. Um, but equally, that element then of you know, the parents are the provide, they're the pharmacists as well, they're the medical cabinet. And within that medical cabinet, there may be a young child who has got a cold, you know, they they may need to take some sort of uh, cough and flu remedy and getting into the habit of even parents knowing that, well, there are some products on the market that contain pseudoephedrine. And if you were to to give your child that before a competition and in the future they were going to be subject to to, to doping tests, then actually that can bring up a, a positive stimulant. That already, if we can start to engage them and, and help them to understand what role they can play, and that's not necessarily show them what a test looks like or or who's who in the world of anti-doping, but it's what role they play as a parent. You're then starting, habits are starting to be nurtured early on, and it therefore doesn't become really hard and effortful if people are only receiving this knowledge and understanding, you know, as they're entering adulthood. So, yeah, that again speaks to seeing it in the whole and seeing all the different developmental processes and opportunities where we can engage people because it's relevant and it's important rather than just be applying this knowledge in a really kind of enforce enforcing attitude and you've just got to do it, you've just got to comply. But people have got to understand a reason and have a motivation to want to do these things because if we get that right, then we're much more likely to, to get behaviour that is going to protect athletes' rights and, and responsibilities to, to clean sport. What an enriching conversation. Thank you so much, Sue, for for being brave and candid, active enough in such a complex and controversial area and illuminating it with a real sense and pragmatism so that hopefully we're going to all try to make the future support of aspiring athletes and, and coaches a little bit better. But um, it would be remiss of me not to ask you um, any particular resources that you feel that anybody who's listening in um, that can get some support. So hopefully we can encourage people to make the right decisions. Yeah, you can visit Leeds Beckett University website and the Carnegie School of Sport web pages. Uh, there you'll find the research team and the Sporting Integrity and Welfare Research Group. And that will connect into my own profile, but the profile of other colleagues within the team. So Laurie Patterson and Helen Staff, for example, they're leading the coach programme and the parent programme respectively. But you'll be able to access some of the latest publications from the group, uh, see some of the recent projects that we're involved in and get a feel for some of the interventions as well that we've been delivering and, and evaluating. 
That will also have connections in some of the latest research reports from the group. But, you know, we're not just the only group that's undertaking research in this area. And, and really, critically, in the last few years, the importance of collaboration has never been more important. And through the European Union and their Erasmus Plus project, we've created the Clean Sport Alliance, which is leading to the development of a much needed knowledge exchange platform. And we do recognise that just targeting individual athletes and telling them not to dope, you know, that's not going to get us anywhere. We, we need collective action and, and therefore we need collective intelligence and we're working hard to do that. Uh, and uniting other academic teams with national anti-doping organisations and I think that's really exciting. So watch this space and if it's okay with you, we'll, we'll work with you maybe to, to promote that platform and disseminate it out to your audience who then can perhaps cascade that further. So exciting times and, and much to be done really to, to create that space and platform. Fantastic. So I'm hearing there collective responsibility and so if uh, if we provide some links in the show notes of the podcast then and we'll update those as they as they mature over time so that's our that's our responsibility for that thank you so much sue pleasure thank you very much for for the conversation this morning i've really enjoyed it So if you'd like to follow Sue, then you can do so on Twitter at Susan Backhouse. You can follow us on Twitter at support underscore champs and me at Ingham underscore Steve. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes, then that would be amazing. Now, Ken Blanchard, the leadership author, once said, it's been true in my life that when I've needed a mentor, the right person shows up. So if you've come to the end of this episode and you're thinking about what you're working on and you're looking for some support, then maybe we can show up for you. So we've been supporting professionals and leaders take the next step in their career through coaching and mentoring. We've been helping people with identifying strengths and managing weaknesses, career direction, struggling with a challenge and looking for the confidence to move forward. So if you're keen to get some support to help you go to the next level in work, life or sport, then take a look at supportingchampions.co.uk forward slash coaching hyphen mentoring and where you can sign up for a free consultation to explore which package is right for you.